0: Our guest today is Spencer Hilligas. He's a former technology executive with a 13-year track record building high-performing teams across five companies. But what's most interesting about Spencer is that he's financially free through passive investing in multifamily, but also other asset classes. So we're gonna talk about this particular journey to financial freedom, how he did it, why he did it, and what kind of asset classes he had invested in, and what he kind of sees as the outlook for the market moving forward in 2023. Before we get to that though. I'm going to give a shout out to Brent, who left us a review on Amazon for the yellow book, Financial Freedom with Real Estate. He said, this is a great book for someone who's just starting out in real estate investing. Fantastic. What I'd love to do is anyone who reads Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I want them to read the yellow book right after that because Rich Dad, Poor Dad puts this idea in in your mind that you can become financially independent, but it doesn't really give you the playbook for how to do it. And of course, the reader's left to their own devices, and I, like so many, goes, well, I surely must invest in single-family houses, and that is not true because you can't scale it. It's a very active form of business, but multifamily and apartments is, and you can do it without experience or a lot of money in the bank, and so that book that Brent talked about is Financial Freedom with Real Estate on Amazon, so if you have not checked it out, definitely do that as well. I want to give a student or success highlight someone who has done a deal, and it was Adam Nort. He closed 26 units in Cincinnati for $1.3 million. It was his first deal. He was working with a full-time syndicator. His name is David Kamara. And David owns $105 million in real estate, over 1,000 units. And Adam has the ability to work with him through our mentoring program where we attract high-level syndicators, very successful who want to help others not only do their first deal, but quit their job like they have. And and David Camaro in turn, was actually a mentoring student literally two and a half, three years ago. And he's done a deal, did two, quit his job, and now has done a a number, number of deals. So if you're interested in our mentoring program, check it out. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. And just schedule a call with us. It's a really a no-obligation call that creates clarity for, for what you want in your life and how investing in multifamily could help you achieve that goal. So check it out, themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. With that, let's bring on Garrett, our co-host, Garrett Lynch. What's going on? What's going on, Michael? You know, you know what's going on right now. You're constantly looking looking at deals and and sourcing debt and things of that nature. What are we guy? What are we seeing with regards to deal flow right now?
1: So we're seeing deals come up that I never thought I'd see honestly, which is which is kind of cool. so we're we focus on on certain markets and and one of the markets that we never really see deals in they're starting to pop out and there's there's quite a few deals that we're seeing we're seeing the volume hike up but a lot of the deal volume that we're seeing are more distressed assets. so there's people that are definitely feeling the pressure of the market. And they're starting to offload. So we're seeing we're seeing a lot of those challenged properties. A lot of them are overlooking, but there are some good ones in there. Owners right, so, that have owned for decades, even we're seeing some of those guys look look to sell right now, which is is pretty interesting.
0: So deal flow is up, which is interesting because after the interest rate hikes and inflation this time last year, when the market collapsed after February, March of last year, I mean it pretty much dried up because lending went away. And so, and then there was this giant gap between sellers and buyers, and very few actually traded hands because of that. So, you're saying that deal flow is coming back and you're seeing some distressed operators. Explain why there might be distressed operators. What's going on right now that creates that situation?
1: Yeah. So, a lot of it has to do with the pressure of interest rates rising. There's people that, they saw it hit the top of the mountain and they don't want, maybe they bought early enough and they're like, Hey, there's still profit here to be made. I want to sell. And let's take some of that profit. Now they think things are going to get worse. Maybe there's a crash or something like that. So they're going to come to the table. There's others that maybe have loans that they they need to get out of. And so they're, they're looking to sell just to get out of those loans or they see that they're, you know, they're, they're struggling with operations and they've, you know, run out of cash to continue those operations, and so they're, they're like, hey, let's just get what we can. Those are the main things that that I'm seeing right now. And when we were at NMHC, we were hearing that there was going to be a lot of new deals hitting in Q1, and and that's that is the case right now. There's a lot of people that are just coming to terms with, hey, it's, this is a good time for us to, to unload, and let's do it.
0: It's interesting because we kind of forecasted that late last year because of the rise in interest rates. And we're in an environment now where, as operators, we're playing both defense and offense at the same time. We're playing defense because we have to deal with rising interest rates like everybody else. The difference is between the good and not so good operators, the good operators have the cash flow to sustain it. Now, maybe their distributions are going to go down, the returns and the cash flow and cash and returns going down, but they're not going to be in any kind of distress. But what's happening now what we're starting to see now is a lot of the operators that are not as good as operators where the cash flow was skinny before, they're going into the red and they're running out of cash. And the problem with that is they can't refinance because they don't have the NOI, they don't have the occupancy. And so their only option really is to sell quickly and it's not happening publicly. They're not getting market for it. It's going to be off market it's going to be very, very distressed. So it sounds like Garen, we're starting to see that. So I'm, I'm actually really excited about the rest of the year because it might present some opportunities for us as well. This is why, and we'll talk about with Spencer, the opportunity this year is pretty staggering. So Spencer is a great interview guys with Spencer. He's been around for a little while. He's become financially free with, with real estate by investing passively. He had a high earning job in a high tech company, he and his wife, and his wife. And we talked about how he got into it and what some of the investments he made. Is it a mix of cash flow? Is it growth? What about the tax implications of that. What did he invest in? Why does he like certain investments? Does he like turnkeys? Does he not like turnkeys? What about other things and other investments as well? We get all that into this bantering session with Spencer. Let's get right into the interview. Spencer, welcome to the show today. Michael,
2: Garrett, really great to be back. Thanks for having me back on.
0: Yeah. Last time you your show was in 2019. It was episode 186. And actually, you, I think you still had a day job at the time. And you talked about certain financial goals, and you wanted to achieve them by investing passively. And you have now done that. You've achieved financial freedom by investing passively. So we want to understand that a little bit. Kind of give us an overview and we'll kind of go deep in there. How how did it get started with real estate and passive investing? How did you get started in that at all? Because most people invest in stock in the stock market.
2: Yeah. And this has been such an incredible journey. You know, even hearing you say that, Michael, from 2019 to now, that was a quick blur of a four years. Whiz bang version of my story. I was in technology companies, tech companies for 13 years, similar to you, Michael. And so I went through that journey never expecting to go work in Silicon Valley. My dad was a real estate broker. I used to be embarrassed to say that. So I grew up in a real estate household. That's what scared me into tech. Yeah, you know, I was cleaning out old fridges and rentals and working open houses for him growing up in that lifestyle. It did go through a really rough patch back then. I won't go way into it, but I'll just say that. My whole family went through like a what we call the dark decade when a bunch of tragedy hit the family, lost a younger brother, parents got divorced. I won't go super mm-hmm. deep on this to bum people out, but I'll just say that hardship of any type makes us all pay more attention and, and it sinks in. And way I learned from that journey, and I hold on to these learnings now as a dad with two young kids. And we were just chatting about this before we hit record today, Michael. I'm sitting not at home. I'm sitting about to take my kids to Disneyland for the first time tomorrow, which is one of the benefits of investing passively ways, you have more mobility. but at the end of that tech journey, I realized after grinding it out 18 hour days all those stories we've all heard about in Silicon Valley. I've been at five different companies making great W2 income, Jennifer, my wife and and, and co-founder. Uh, she she had her own career, her own income. We were burnt out. I mean we were trying to find that you know Silicon Valley lottery that everyone seems to cling on to when you work for that early stage company get the big Google exit. And ultimately, that's just not how it panned out at the time. So when you and I first connected, I was going deep down this rabbit hole of, man, can I go maybe buy a rental? You know, so I, I knew enough to know I could go buy something that generated passive income. But as I shared in 2019 with you, and just give the Cliff's notes, I look at it in hindsight, it's clear, felt very unclear at the time when I first started doing this back in about 2016, but bought a local rental. It was more work, low cash flow. Four hundred and thirty grand in Vallejo, California. Still have it now. Great appreciation. Still low cash flow. Two hundred bucks <laughs> a month for four hundred thirty grand is not a home run <laughs> by so, any means.
0: You know, at, at least so I did hit the the software l- lotto, right? And so because yeah. the company I co- I joined in Web Methods actually went public, and it was it, and I realized though that it was a lotto, like it was a very unusual, rare occurrence. And I I was going to do it again. And I was like, like you, I'm like, man, I don't know if I'm going to work another 12 hour days for next four years for the possibility of some kind of payday. But unlike yourself, I plowed all my money into restaurants, which seemed like a really good idea at the time. And at least you plowed it into some rental property, which is, of course, you know, not that great of an idea and either, but vastly better than restaurants. But as you got into it, right, you are like, man, what should I do? This thing isn't really producing a lot of cash flow. How did you educate yourself about what to put the money in?
2: I devoured content and I listened to, at the time, upwards of 400 plus podcasts in an 18 month period. I got the bug so bad, Michael. And your podcast was one of the top of the list. You know, I was I was really engaged with it. I was like, wow, there's a different way to do this. I, I read too many books, flat out, I'll just say too many books, beyond the point of education into procrastination, right? It was like 24 books or something in a, an 18-month <laughs> period. A little, little bit over the top. But then I was actually ushered into a, this is my last W2 gig. And I left in 2019, ultimately, very, very end of that year. I mean, at the same year you and I recorded that that podcast, it was ahead of schedule. I was working at a, at a fix and flip tech company lender. It was all those things in one. So I saw all these different investments that people were making and we were helping them make them in fix and flip. And I was like, I can't swing a hammer. Like I hurt myself if I do that stuff, I'm not handy. Jennifer's more handy than I am. Not, not a shame to say it. So all that to say, I was like, where's more predictability? Where's more uh, forecastable, big, big, you know, business plan, business operations style investing. And then I looked at, wow, let's go look up market, and then I found your education. Frankly, I mean, I found your program. I remember purchasing the SDA. The first, it was the, one of the first versions, if not the first version, of the Syndicated Deal Analyzer. And my, you know, Michael and I, by the way, didn't say, didn't talk about any of this ahead of time. I didn't even tell me to say that. And I'm just sharing it because that's what happened. Like I bought the damn thing, and it was super helpful and educational. And I was just deep down that rabbit hole saying, I want my money invested in something that produces cash flow better than two hundred bucks a month for a four hundred thirty thousand dollar purchase price, and even after buying turnkey rentals, we got into a portfolio of five turnkey rentals in the Midwest, which was fine. Better purchase price, sixty k a pop is mind-blowingly cheap for someone sitting in a coastal market of any type. Two hundred fifty bucks a month in cash flow. So, flash forward, we started investing in these bigger deals, and I was like, wait, I don't have to do any work. Don't have to even manage the property manager, which is semi-passive at best even I'm not, I'm not against rentals overall, but I'll just say there's no such thing as a fully passive rental. You know, we've since sold our rentals, except for that one, that, that one first non-home run, it's appreciated. But beyond that, we came into a place, Jennifer and I, where we're like, this is a system. You know, if we really plan this out, we can invest over time. So we started carving out chunks of 25K, 50K, eventually bigger amounts. We'd saved up money from our tech careers. And ultimately, started to get some momentum. And one of the first deals that we exited full cycle was actually with a Nighthawk deal as well. And we were very pleased with that outcome. I mean, it was like a three-year hold period, you know, and, and and over like a two, two point early, I can't remember the exact, it was like 2.2 or 2.3 equity multiple in that period of time. Mind blown at that point. And we just kept on doing it. While finding ways to also add value to others too, because I was sitting there going, I know so many people in my network, and I'm sure you do too, Michael, where they're still in that machine. I don't want to be derogatory. I had a great W-2 career and I learned a lot and great relationships, but my goodness, people hustling hard for years without an exit strategy of any type, dropping money into investments. And so I thought cash flow was key so we could de-risk our own lives and build a mode around our life. You know, yeah, get more flexibility. But yeah, you
0: know, in, in defense of so many other people, I had my money, my IPO millions with you know Morgan Stanley at the time, right? And I was like, man, I'm gonna let my, I'm gonna let the professionals handle my money, right? That's literally I could, I got the statement. I didn't even look at the statement every single month, right? And I think most people that have money to invest, that's exactly what they do. They hand it to a financial advisor and they think that they're actually looking out for them. And and in hindsight, I'm like, holy cow. All he wants to do is churn stuff so he gets paid commissions. Like it, it, it's like it's incredible. So there's a lot of comfort and a lot of fear with alternative investments, which is syndication as an investment. How did you and Jennifer overcome that fear? Hmm. Right, like in your mind, you had a conversation. Hey, we got some money invest, and I don't know, maybe it's not the stock market. We should try some crazy stuff. Like, how did that go?
2: <laughs> I, I, that is very much how we thought about it. Right, the, the crazy stuff comment is is making me chuckle because. That's how we were sitting there trying to wrestle with it, like a lot of us, right? It sounds crazy. And you get the reactions from friends, get the reactions from family. And they say, are you out of your mind? And That's then, right. But it's just what we're all con- conditioned to do. I was so proud of my 401ks, right? I was so proud of dumping and maxing out money for years in 401ks. We'd sit there and celebrate those things. And I'm a big fan of frameworking. I think, I think in our conversation back in 2019, we might've talked about this a bit, Michael, but... I love being able to make smart decisions even better if you can make smart decisions with with some speed, if you need to, and you have to sometimes, right? And in tech startups, that's what I learned from people way smarter than me, man. How do you framework it? So we put together like a framework for ourselves for our own money. And we were like, if we find deals that meet this framework, and some of some of which inspired from the, frankly, from the SDA and the teachings that I got from you and from from your program. And if we look at it like this, it's a five-part framework. We still have these bullets now, but we've built out a lot more structure around them. Who's Who's got the deal? You know, How do you de-risk, who's managing the deal? If we're not managing it like a rental anymore, who's managing the deal? Where, where's the market? And then of course the business plan. I didn't come up with those three buckets. The real meat is the five that we have beneath that, in my opinion. So we look at the track record, the approach, the team, the communications and the values. That's how we got more comfortable. And I have a very nerdy spreadsheet beneath that, of course. <laughs> with, you know, breaked out with 70 plus questions and criteria. And just to give you a sampling of, of like the ones I think are most important to me and Jennifer before we can really get comfortable with this stuff was like same principles from entrepreneurship and tech failure response is kind of nerdy branding, but I, I like it a lot. It's like, has someone been through a really, really challenging time? If they're managing a deal, if they're going to be, you know, be managing an apartment building and I'm, holding shares in a piece of this big building I couldn't buy by myself. Like have they gone through a really, really challenging experience and come out the other side because none of this is easy for the manager, right? Even if in a great rising tide market, I assume there's going to be hardship. There's going to be headwinds. There's going to be stuff. And so that, you know, those are the kinds of questions we had to ask just to get ourselves comfortable with it. Of course, all the numbers, you got to understand how to read a spreadsheet, but like, it really comes down to that, that who, and like, are they able to go and operate if I'm investing in a passive deal with a repeatable business process that if I had to boil it down to got the track record, sure. Anyone who's done something, whether it's me playing my hobby guitar, used to play more metal and punk rock back in the day and now performing for my kids. If, if I'm trying to learn a new technique or learn a song, if I've done it enough times, hundred times, I've got a process to learn that thing now. Same thing goes, you know, with an apartment building, way harder to do. You know, such, such as you, know, you guys in Nighthawk, like you get through enough cycles, you can build a repeatable process. And so that was the great equalizer. I had to say is we sat there and made a framework and decided if we find deals that meet these criteria, we're ready to pull the trigger, assuming we have the capital ready ready to to deploy. You know, and so I get excited to talk about it because I feel like it's it's been a labor of love getting it to the point where we can have confidence in it to that degree. But yeah.
0: If you want to work with a full-time syndicator to help you get up to speed faster, get your first deal done this year and scale your portfolio so you can quit your job, then check out our mentoring program. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. It's the only program out there that actually guarantees results. That's right. We actually guarantee that you do your first deal in the first year. Otherwise, we'll keep working with you and set up a a strategy session call and explore whether it's right for you. It's themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor
1: what created you to build this framework? And then how do you get the right answers out of some operators to actually get them to admit like some of the, the tough failures, tough losses when you when you're interviewing them so that you feel comfortable moving forward?
2: Yeah. I, I appreciate you asking that Garrett. Cause that's like where the rubber meets the road, right? When you're getting to know any other human being, whether it's in business life, whatever, I think it comes down to not hitting them with an interview, like a job interview, right? Like, these are human beings working hard. I don't want to come in and say, is everyone prepared to answer my 70 point, li- 70 point list of questions? Um, yeah, exactly. No one wants to get slapped with that verbally, right? I don't. I, and I'm, I've been on both sides of the interviewing table in my prior life so many times, I know how it can feel. In the end, being respectful to the core in timetable, like if you ask for something, be reasonable, but also... If possible, try and get face to face with them if you can, even on a, on a Zoom call. I mean, just like this, you know, if we can connect face to face, even if it's virtually, build some rapport, get to know them, and then also show them an indication of seriousness in any way, shape, or form by like letting them know, you know, your own track record as a passive investor, too. I'm so proud to say like we've now deployed over seven figures of capital into deals, and that's across a lot of darn deals. So it's not like we're doing it in abstract purely just to kind of say hey we you know hey operator hey sponsor tell us all these answers to these questions so we can never see you again. It's like let, let's go build a relationship ever deepening but at least starting on that first call just saying here's what I'm coming correct with like here's how we view deals sharing how we view deals sharing why we're asking these questions. And one other example I'll give you as well Garrett like is a question that has actually Prompted us to not go forward with a particular sponsor. And it might f- feel out of left field for some folks is that on values, it sounds all squishy, but it's not squishy to me in the sense that it's really just more behavioral interviewing. Like if I'm going to say, tell me about a time when <laughs> those wonderful, terrifying questions that we've all gotten in job interviews at some point or another, it, you know, if, if I'm asking a sponsor, gotten into know each other, and I'm like, hey, like, what's your philosophy on? tenant experience you know like like is there, how do you know your tenants are taken care of in that building Like, and we walked away from one sponsor because asked the same question a few different ways and very nicely and all that they would want to do is change the topic you know and, and it was like maybe for some people that and it's absolutely fine if they don't agree with that but I think making sure you give people a chance to answer in their own way but eventually they do have to answer the stuff that really matters to us and and you know whether it's failure response, if they haven't been through anything really hard, like it doesn't even have to be from real estate. Tell us about a time. Like, Tell me about a time when you've been through something that where you were like, you thought you were about to fail out in a, a different entrepreneurship venture. And Michael, I appreciate you earlier sharing you know, your story from the, the food business, restaurant business. I mean, you better believe I would count that as a valid story. You better. That's, yeah. I mean, come on. it's That's, cr- that's crushingly challenging, What a hair on right? my chest,
0: let me tell you. Yeah, oh my
2: gosh. In the <laughs> food industry, it's is, is no cakewalk. <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's
0: funny. It's funny that you mentioned that one question. I sometimes reference that one question. I don't really care—not so much that if you're a new syndicator or not, but I do want to know the same thing. Have you been through really hard times? Because if you have not, you're not going to be able to deal with that level of stress, and it's going to impact your ability to make decisions. So it's interesting that you highlighted that. But I'm—I'm I'm, yeah. curious, Spencer. What are some of the alternative investments you guys? invested in or looked at and just kind of go through the list with maybe some pros and cons. Cause I think a lot of people are going to be interested in see what, you know, what have you looked, you've talked about turnkeys. Let's start there, right? A sure. turnkey is a great, so you got the rental property. Okay. Okay. We get the rental property. It's not so scalable and the cash flow kind of sucks. Okay. Next. And you got a, you know, it's very active. Okay. Next of course is turnkeys. What's the problem with turnkeys? If there is one. Yeah.
2: You know, and I'll try to do my best kind of version of a mental pros and cons, little T chart. <laughs> Cause I'm not kind of nerd. Turnkeys, well, they are what they, they they should be what they claim to be, easy to buy, easy to manage, comes with the property manager built in, comes with the tenant's lease. Well, what happens on the flip side of that chart when maybe that tenant is not so so easy on that property? Do you want that tenant lease? And turnkeys oftentimes you will find are going to be based in C class and C class is a fine asset class, whether it's single families or otherwise. But you know, folks just need to think about. Really looking at that neighborhood, is it a D plus in reality? You know, is it not just a C? Because when the rubber meets the road, no matter how much I tried to de-risk remotely, I didn't fly to some of the turnkeys that we bought. I even paid for a company to go and visit remotely in person, take videos of the block, really get in there. And I thought, okay, there's a little bit of a little a little bit of concern, you know, not a red flag, yellow flag, but turnover every year is kills your financials, right? I mean like one tenant, one property, they leave 0% occupancy. Then you've got the turnover cost because the property took a couple, a couple dings. And then for no reason, the tenant puts a couch out on the front yard, which causes the city to find you. And then you're getting let mail out in a different state for no reason. And you have, <laughs> I
1: could go on and on. You know? This, this was like, this is pretty funny. because that. I, not funny, but I, I, this is how I learned the business was, it was this essentially I own like turnkeys, like, in, but in D class neighborhoods. So you had the element of crime on top of it. And it's like, you even if you rehab the entire site, let's say you do, you know, it's a three flat and you, you do all three units and you, you have to put section eight in there. They don't care if they destroy your site. And then, and then you have all those costs when they leave. So I was like, why did you even rehab it in the first place? It's not really enough to call insurance over and you don't want to do that. So it's like, it's never ending really when you get to that. Yeah. And then having multiple sites everywhere, it, even if you bump it up into C-class, you're still, you're still dealing with those types of, of issues. So it's.
0: So turnkeys aren't really that profitable and they're not really that passive either. And now obviously correct. you looked at multifamily syndications. We talked about what, what else have you invested in or looked at?
2: yeah and so to run down the list and then we can dive into whichever one yeah is interesting because I find them all pretty interesting in their own ways, right but I would say beyond multifamily very big focus on like self storage over the years we, we you know looked at did a little bit of mobile home park what else have we done medical office you know so I think beyond that we've done even a little bit of crypto feeling that now <laughs> I won't go further <laughs> into that. Still have it. Still a long-term believer, but feeling it now. Uh, and then uh, niche, like really other just stranger niche stuff that you guys are probably familiar with, but maybe some folks are not because I wasn't a few years ago, like, uh, like ATMs. What? And I've looked at others, gotten very close to pulling the trigger on on industrial, gotten very close to pulling the trigger on data centers, but ultimately have kept to the things that I've, I've I really taken the time in my own mind to feel like I can say, I know this well. And every time I violate that principle, man, do I pay for it. You know, it's, a, so it's, it's, a, it's a
0: good point. It's a good point. I mean, it's like data centers, perfect example, right? How do you break into a new asset class? Let's, I mean, let's talk about, let's talk about that because um, data centers are wildly profitable from what I've heard. Okay. Yeah. But you're right. Would I invest blindly in data centers? I'd be like, no, I, I don't really know anything about them. So what is your process? now I know you talked about interviewing the operator. So we've covered that already, but when you're breaking mm. into an asset class, what do you do? How do you go about investigating that asset class to the point where you either say, no, not for me, or yes, let's go. Yeah.
2: Oh, that's a fun question. I think goal setting, not to be abstract at a high level, but drill down quickly. What's the goal for the money? Right. right?
0: Now that's really important.
2: Like, like what's the goal for the money? Man, I wish I had heard that earlier in my investing mm-hmm. career, right? Because some folks, particularly in 2023 right now, they are so laser focused on expectations that they have built from the past three to five to seven, eight years. They they, they still want that high growth with risk-adjusted profile, and they want big growth and big cash flow. And I'm sitting there going, hey, me me too. (laughs) I think think everyone does. But if I'm looking at something, whether it's self-storage or mobile home parks or whatever, or data centers, I'm sitting there going, okay, what are the core fundamentals of cash flow versus growth and some combination in between maybe with some other conversation on tax. And I don't like to overcomplicate it beyond that until I've answered that question first, is do I want our capital to help us produce any form of passive income? Or are we comfortable saying, you know, you know screw the, sorry, the, the passive income, just the growth is fine. Don't need any cash flow. Okay with some tax benefits on top of that, but we just want this money to grow. And I struggle with that still. I don't think that ever is going to get easy. I, I, and maybe you guys have an answer on that that I don't have, but I think goal setting for life is the first order of business that Jennifer and I started with back in this is back in 2016 before before I even started learning alongside the resources and education that you and your team provided. Michael it was like sitting there and going, "Do I want cash flow for cash flow's sake? Everyone says I should care about cash flow. Why? Do I want growth for for growth's sake? Why?" Ask a new member of like our investing club, like, "Hey." What are you trying to do? You know, like we we did our own thing. We have our own goals, but what are you trying to do? And this, and they may take months to answer that question, and sometimes they do. And it's, so you have a, to start there.
0: Yeah, it's a good point because high cash flow means that your money is coming back. You're not going to reinvest the cash flow, so it'd be better use it to maybe I don't know buy something or, or, or offset your living expenses. Growth is basically compounded, right? So you got you have that, and and finding the balance between between the two. You have you know there's for example. Debt funds out there. You can invest in debt funds. Yes. They just give you basically a straight ten percent, you know, return. No upside at all. So that's really cool for cash flow. Doesn't give you any depreciation, right? So you want depreciation? No, that's not going to work. Multi-family is better. But even like for example, oil and gas. And if you looked at that, but that you can. My understanding is that the tax benefits is that you can actually offset your active earned income. With the losses off off the investment, like stuff like that, right? But of course, that's super high cash flow and not really appreciation and growth. So I think it's a it's a really good question to ask. And you're right; there sh- probably should be a mix. There must be a mix,
2: and there must be a mix. And, and also, I want to give some real numbers to folks if I can. From our time, we started in like 2016, really educationally, on this stuff getting deep, buying rentals, et etc. We connected on your podcast in 2019. At that time, I was still working. Jennifer, my wife and co-founder of our investing club, like she was still working. She ended up leaving in her job 2021. And then, you know, now we're fully, fully passive, able to do what we want and, and work actively if and when we want. But the journey that no one can tell you about, and I wish I could go back in time and just say this to myself is, okay, you guys set out. And at the time I shared with you in that podcast, Michael, we had like $8,000 a month goal for a full passive, right? For some people that's tiny, good on them you know, I'm not looking for a jet over here. I'm just trying to figure out how we can live, be a great dad, be present with our kids and live life fully. For some people that's massive, but that was our number at that time. So what did we do? Well, we wanted to find a balance of cash flow and growth at the time we could find pretty darn good equity multiples, right? We, we could, we could exit like on the Nighthawk deal. We exited along with you and your team over two X equity multiple and do that in just a few short years. Now that said before we hit that cash flow number of 8K a month, which we've now hit, and I'm so excited that we've hit it, and I can't, I'm kind of pinching myself. We thought we were going to hit that number 15 years out. And that was the goal mm. that we had set in 2016. We gave ourselves a long runway, a no excuse runway, and we said, as long as we plan this and we stick to the slow wealth plan, we're going to get to that number. It was too slow. Within about a couple of months, we had another goal setting session. This is back in 2016, and we we're like, cut that number in half. How about seven years? we ended up hitting it in about five. And I wish I could go back and say to myself, set the goal and then just start taking action toward it because what's going to happen. And I promise anyone out there who is like sitting there going like, Oh, I don't know. It's like 2023. And it's, I'm hearing these headlines. It's nerve wracking. I'm like, I promise anyone that is in that headspace and they haven't done any of this passive investing stuff. You don't know what you don't know yet. And that's not a bad thing. What that means is that you're going to get into what deal or two, and you're going to realize with more clarity every single additional time you invest, just like we did, how to get better at goal setting on this stuff. But you won't benefit like we never would have gotten to this point where I can speak with clarity about this stuff unless we just gone through and done the damn thing. And so I know we're not talking chump change, you know. Like I don't want to make it sound like I think of twenty five k as a small irrelevant number. It's not. I know there's some big, big, very successful folks out there who think of that as this chump change for anyone. That's still a a meaningful amount of money. Right. But we had to get started. And so I didn't want to give you too much of a soapbox on that, but I really, truly believe that. Like if I could go back in time and just say, set your criteria, make a decision, vet the people. And then as you ladder up and the capital comes back to you from exits, whether it's multifamily storage or otherwise, I mean, I don't see a need to deviate from a target mix in our own personal portfolio of at least 50%. This is this is a fact. This is like our target portfolio for our own personal capital is at least 50% multifamily. And the reason that's not changing, regardless of the context of the market, is because the housing demand is there. It's not going anywhere. And it's got all those fundamentals of the entire asset class that I loved in the first place. This is a this is a long game. And we're in a short moment relative to the big picture, so I didn't didn't want to preach too hard yeah, on the multifamily thing.
0: Well, wrap things up, there, But what, what is your outlook for for this year, just in, in general, multifamily, right? I mean, obviously, like you said, hey, we're not getting the returns we got two years ago, even maybe even a year ago. You know, yeah. you're not you're gonna. I got the high cash flow, high appreciation, and zero risk anymore. You know, yeah. so what what is, what is your outlook this this year for multifamily? Some of the, you know, the investments that you maybe that you're in as well as some of the opportunities that you might be looking at.
2: Yeah, there was a brilliant quote. And I had, gosh, I wish I could give credit to the person that said this. It it has served me so well since I heard it about three or four years ago in an investing meetup. There's no such thing as bad assets. There's only bad prices. And I think that that is a fundamental, helpful compass to think about where we are right now for any investor who's really trying to wrestle with all these darn headlines that are frankly kind of confusing and overwhelming for everyone, right? We've all been getting access to interest rates and cheap money, basically, (laughs) including businesses, tech, companies, et cetera, real estate investors beyond. What I see is, and I sent this in a a letter actually out to all of our investors in our investor club. I said, there's three things that I think this year will be a focus for, for my money, And I I would just encourage folks to go learn more about these things because this is what I see as opportunity. Number one, unsurprisingly, discounted, if not distressed, commercial real estate. (laughs) It's not deviating from our core thesis. is buying great assets in places with job supply and population demographics that support people living and using these facilities. The difference is now... For a variety of reasons but largely because of interest rate rise some of these properties are going to be going on a discount because the person owning it might have to sell for a variety of reasons like maybe that they can't pay a balloon payment on their loan and it's coming due maybe the market is softened in their specific state and their sub market that seller is like gosh but i have to i just have to leave this property that that means anyone who's partnered up with a team such as yours you know and, and nighthawk they can actually benefit from that moment. And so it's a time to, to just pay attention and sharpen pencils on the commercial real estate side. It is not the time for people to go out in my humble opinion. And I'm not going to sit there and say, we'd better wait for when it's good to invest again when everyone says things are great. No, that's kind of the opposite of what every wealthiest person on the planet insists on and has made their money from. Mm-hmm. I mean, what pick Sam Zell, you know, pick Warren Buffett, pick pick, pick whichever example you want. I mean, read the platitudes, there's truth in those nuggets they make money when things are not great because they buy the assets at the right price and so that was the first thing i was just going to mention second was debt funds i I would actually just encourage that too but the problem is i put it second for all the reasons that you highlighted very well articulating michael is like i don't see a k-1 schedule k-1 tax form showing wonderful passive losses to offset and defer my income tax on my distributions for my investments on a debt fund but they're still a part of, of a whole portfolio, and then yep. there's other niche, niche, weird stuff for number three. But that's kind of the overarching I, comment I think.
0: <laughs> it's interesting that you say that. I think that I think we're going to see lots of opportunity in the multifamily market, commercial real estate in, in general, for the reasons you mentioned as well. So it's it's, it's something we're definitely looking forward to, and we want to you know, buy as much as we can when that comes. In fact, the deal we have right now is is distressed somewhat because of that, and I think we're going to see a lot more in the, in the summer and and later this year, but this has been great. Jeff Spencer really enjoyed jamming with you. How can people connect with you?
2: Yeah. Honored to be back, you know, and be able to share kind of a full circle experience. And and thank you so much, Garrett. Thank you so much, Michael, for it. Folks can find me at our website. It's our investing club. It's madisoninvesting.com. They can reach me there. I'm also on LinkedIn. I, I took a very healthy break, but I'm very active on that again. Now the passive lifestyle of, you know, Traveling and stuff with your family means you don't always get to post on social media as much, but I'm back on there now. so
0: (laughs) That's awesome. Well, it's been great, Spencer. Thanks for being on the show today.
2: Yeah. Thank you for having me. Really a blast. Thank you, guys.
0: Yeah. So definitely check out Spencer and his company. He does. He's a great heart. He loves educating people about alternative investments. But if you are interested in investing in passive investments, such as multifamily syndications, we'd love to have a conversation with you at Nighthawk Equity, which is our investment firm. Just head on to nighthawkequity.com, click the join button and schedule a call with us. Once we get to know each other, we can present you with some upcoming opportunities. And we're always looking at opportunities. So definitely check us out at Nighthawk Equity if you're interested in passively investing. But the thing for me, Garrett, is that there's so many people that invest in the stock market, right? And like, like when when I had money to invest, I just handed it over to my financial advisor until one day I woke up and I was like, "Man, something is not right." You know, I'm paying too many taxes. I'm getting my seven or eight percent appreciation, but there's a lot of volatility, and it really ruined some of my financial plans. And I wasn't getting cash flow. But the day I fired my my financial advisor was scary. It really is scary because you just rely on a person and you put it on them to take care of you. And and actually, they, they don't really take care of you. And we saw with Spencer that in five short years that parlaying not only the money that he started with that he had in the stock market, but reinvesting the proceeds from that is a snowball effect that within five years, literally is covering his living expenses. And he doesn't have to swing a hammer. He doesn't have to find deals and and put deals together is simply taking the money you already have, putting it in investments wisely. And Does it take a little extra time? Yes, but should the average stock market investor actually look at whatever they're investing in and ask some questions around what the money is going into? They should, but no one does. So it takes a little more time to educate yourself about these alternative investments, and maybe to find an operator or two. But it's not like you're you're. It's not like you're looking at twelve investment classes. You're not. You're looking at twelve operators in each class. So there's a little extra time to have the. And he put the
1: time in, and now he can reap the benefits of that. This is just society. When you're when you're going through society and, and the education system and everything, you get out on the other side. I remember my first. Advisors like a life insurance guy, right? And I always felt weird about it. I'm like, why am I, why am I investing in this when I'm not gonna? I have to break even at year seven and and whatever. And I'm young, and I maybe it was a good thing at the time, but it was so slow. I'm looking at it, and I'm like, this is so slow. Before this turns into anything, and that's just how society's kind of set up. And then you don't really even know the questions to ask these financial advisors to see if they're taking advantage of you or what the deal is like, like, or, or even maybe how it all works. Like how much, how many commissions are they cutting themselves in on that are inhibiting you from getting to where you need to go? And, and so the whole thing is set up weird. And I think based on this interview, it's, you know, Spencer went through something very similar. He was just like disgusted with all that stuff. He's like, this isn't, this isn't fast enough. We need something speedier and we want to be safe about it. You don't just want to wing and throw a bunch of money into some a bunch of tech investments and and hope that you know you're gonna strike it big on that side you want look at risk adjusted returns and so I really liked how he came up with a framework to figure out what that looked like. And that that was something that was unique where he's like I'm a big fan of frameworking. I'm gonna back into to where we need to go Based on where, what the goal is with the money,
0: yeah, I like that. As I like that as well. But you know, most people are their strategy is to try to accumulate and save their way to that. But you know, and you live by the four percent rule, which says that you shouldn't sell more than four percent of your assets. And if you can do that, your assets will never get down. But if you may want to want to make a hundred grand a year, okay, that's after tax. Okay, you gotta you gotta invest two and a half million dollars. You have to have two and a half million dollars of savings and or investable assets. Now, who in America has that? I think I looked it up a little while ago. I think the average average investment by the time people are 65 are like $80,000. Okay, that's the average. The median is right around the same thing. Okay. So the average American is not going to save themselves to financial freedom or even retirement. They're not going to, it's not, it's literally not possible. And so you need another solution. And the solution really is alternative investments. And and what I love about Spencer is he had the courage to pull money out of the out of a stock market. And did he maybe spend too much time listening to podcasts and reading reading books? Yeah, because it's kind of scary. Okay, but once you invest, in, and the the advice I have is just you know stick your toe into an alternative investment. Typically, they're you know fifty thousand dollars minimum. Let's say. You know, Find a good operator that you jive with, like Spencer's talking about, and, and make the investment. You're going to bite your nails all the way through. you know, And then you're going to see, oh gosh, you see how they communicate and see what happens. You see the cash flow come through. And then you know, two, three years later, there's an exit and you're like, man, this is unbelievable. And so now you're in. You just have to get into, you have to just have to get started. So again, if you want to invest passively, would love to help you there on your journey to financial freedom. Check us out at nighthawkequity.com. And to me, again, what Spencer said is that the, we're going to have an amazing opportunity this year. So I think this is a really good year to get into it. And I, I say that all the time. You know, two years was a good time to get into it. A year ago was a good time to get into it. You know, as an operator, we talked about we're some pressure on right now because of the rising interest rates. And we talked about that a little bit earlier in the podcast. And the good operators are going to be fine. If you look at the the holding period of five years, what you're going to find is that the cash flow distributions might go down for a period of time. Okay, Then they'll go back up. The IRR, though, their overall average return is still going to be there. So there's no need to panic. A lot of people panic in a stock market and they sell at the bottom. And then they get back in at the top. Okay, We're not doing that here. We're looking for a compounded return. So I'm really looking forward to this. what this year has to, has to offer us, and we'll keep you posted right here on this podcast. Catch you next time.
1: Thanks for listening. Take the next step
0: toward financial freedom by checking out our Freedom Vault, where you can find free resources to help you with apartment building investing. Whether you're an active investor just starting out, or looking to scale your syndication business, or looking to invest passively, Head over to themichaelblanc.com slash vault to gain access to our Freedom Vault.